Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Mark Schladorn. I'm an elder here at Cross Point Coast along with lead pastor Jeremiah Fife, who's on sabbatical somewhere, um, and Matt Hardy, who's in South Africa. He just preached this morning. He's already done that. And Joel Fair, who you've met earlier this morning. Clearly, I'm excited about this passage because I ran up here before I gave Hannah, thank you, Hannah, the opportunity to read the passage. Um, I also want to um, say happy Father's Day to those of you who are fathers and um, admonish you that the best thing you can do as a father is to point your children to their Heavenly Father daily, often. So as we continue with our sermon series in Acts titled Witnesses, we pick up the narrative in chapter 25 this morning. For those of you who might have missed our study recently, allow me to put today's passage into context of the larger narrative. The Apostle Paul, who was previously known as Saul, has been accused of crimes by the Jewish religious leaders who want to see him executed. He'd been in prison for two years under Felix, the Roman governor of the province. Felix recently has been replaced by Festus, who by all accounts is a much better ruler, who wants to end Paul's imprisonment one way or another. He wants to tie up the loose ends. Festus calls the religious authorities to Caesarea to make their case against Paul, but they lack evidence. Caesarea was built by Herod the Great, and it's located about 70 miles north of Jerusalem. It's a port city. Festus asked Paul if he'd be willing to travel back to Jerusalem to stand trial. Uh, but Paul, knowing that the Jews want to kill him, instead refuses and claims exercises his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar for adjudication. Paul seemingly is, on, is always on trial. But what some might consider interrogations, and the trials certainly are that, Paul views as opportunities to share the gospel. And we're going to look into how he does that today. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your loving kindness, your tender mercy for us, toward us, and your grace. We thank you for this example of Paul, who experienced you firsthand and was markedly changed by what happens, so changed, in fact, that there's nothing else that matters to Paul except proclaiming your gospel. We pray that as we look into this passage today, we would see opportunity for us to go and do likewise. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So as we heard last week, the Jewish religious leaders appearing before the previous Roman governor, Felix, accused Paul of being a plague a person who incites riots, the ringleader of a sect of Nazarenes, and a person who tried to profane the temple by inviting a Gentile inside. These are very serious charges. They weren't true, but they're serious. That was two years earlier, and during that time, Festus never entered a verdict. Later in chapter 24, we read that Festus often met with Paul in the hope of securing a bribe. What Felix and his wife Drusilla instead received was a healthy dose of the gospel, including a call to repentance in light of the coming judgment. We find at the end of chapter 24 that upon exiting his office as governor, Felix leaves Paul, has left Paul in prison as a favor to the Jews. Safe to say in this instance, the gospel fell on deaf ears. So Festus inherits Paul. And within three days of taking office, he travels to Jerusalem from Caesarea to meet with Paul's accusers, who want Paul transferred to Jerusalem because they hope to assassinate him along the way. Festus instead invites the leaders to meet him in Caesarea, where they confront Paul with their charges, which is proper procedure under Roman law. Paul says he's done nothing deserving death under Roman law and publicly appeals his case to Caesar. In other words, Paul is asking to have his case heard in Rome. Festus understands that because Paul is a Roman citizen, he has that right and agrees to send Paul to the empire's epicenter, which at this time was the epicenter of the world. Now, back in chapter 23, we read that Paul had been accused of bogus crimes, before the full council of the Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. 
and that he had to be carried to safety by soldiers because he was in danger of being torn to pieces by an angry mob. In verse 11 of that chapter, we read that the following night, Jesus stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must testify also in Rome. And Paul is on his way to Rome. Now, Festus understands that if he's to send Paul to Caesar, he's going to need a reason for doing so. That would be reasonable. Festus also ascertains the charges against Paul involves Jewish law and someone named Jesus who was crucified, but who Paul says is alive. Festus further understands that he is clearly out of his depth as to what to do. As God's providence would have it, Agrippa the king and his consort slash sister, Bernice, roll into town to pay respects to the new Roman governor and hang around for several days. Festus takes an opportunity to pick Herod's brain regarding Paul's case, and after going over the details with Agrippa, the king agrees to hear the case. So Festus makes arrangements for what for that to happen as soon as possible. In fact, it's going to happen the next morning. Agrippa is curious to hear Paul himself. So here's what you need to know about King Agrippa. He's a member of the Herodian dynasty, repeatedly mentioned in the New Testament. Most of you have heard of Agrippa's grandfather, Herod the Great, because he's part of the Christmas story we read about in Matthew 2. He's the king who ordered the slaughter of all male children under the age of two in Bethlehem, and the surrounding region after the Magi did not return to him with information regarding the whereabouts of the prophesied king. Herod the Great feared his throne would be usurped by Jesus, and that actually happened, just not the way Herod had expected. Herod's great-grandson, Herod Antipas, or excuse me, Herod's, Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas, sent Jesus back to Pilate, and he's the one, so that Jesus would be crucified, and he's also the one who ordered the beheading of John the Baptist. Herod Agrippa, in view today, in today's passage, is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. So now let's move from the background to the foreground, beginning with chapter 25, verse 23, where it says, So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Agrippa and Bernice arrive with all the might and glory and significance. This is pageantry. In fact, in the Greek, it says they arrived in fantasia, fantasy. It's, it's over-the-top ceremonial stuff. A military tribune was an officer in the Roman army who ranked Below the legate and above the centurion, young men of equestrian rank often served as military tribune as a stepping stone to the Roman Senate. These are powerful people that Paul is going to stand before. If this scene were to take place today, I imagine the cable news networks would all be there to capture this ceremonial entrance. Noting the significance of each one of the key players in attendance and lavishly praising their elaborate wardrobes. I imagine it would look a bit like the State of the Union address, where Festus would say, Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Agrippa and his entourage. Well, that's not exactly what Festus said, but Festus does go on to lay out Paul's case before those in attendance and even publicly state that he plans to send Paul to Caesar and hopes that this examination of the prisoner will give him something to write regarding the charges. In the midst of all of this pageantry, Luke tells us simply that at the command of Festus, Paul is brought in. Paul is brought in probably through some side door, and he's brought in in chains, in manacles. The stage is set to make Paul appear insignificant in front of the power elites of the day. Now, Alistair Begg points out that this scene is a picture of the church before the world. The church often looks overmatched by the world's power structures. Time and again throughout history, 
we find kings and rulers seeking to stamp out Christianity. But those rulers rise and fall, and the church remains. Jesus himself said in Matthew, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Like Paul, the church actually thrives in the face of adversity. Here's a modern-day example. Consider China. In her new book, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion, Rebecca McLaughlin points out that in a country that has tried hard to enforce no religion, conservative estimates from 2010 put China's Christian population at more than 68 million, representing 5% of its vast population. But Christianity is spreading so fast, she writes, that experts believe China could have more Christians than the U.S. by 2030, and that it could be a majority Christian country by 2050. The powerful throughout history have tried to suppress and even eradicate God's word. But as the prophet Isaiah tells us, God brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the world as emptiness. But let's return to the kings and rulers in Caesarea. Festus commands that Paul be brought in. Agrippa then gives Paul permission to speak. Where does the power appear to be located in this scene? The setup is clearly designed to diminish and intimidate Paul in the eyes of the crowd. Given that setting, verse 26.1 says, Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what stretching out his hand is. But it's kind of interesting that Paul includes that detail. As we proceed, I want you to consider three questions. First, what is Paul's goal? On this day, what is his goal? Second, how does he achieve that goal? And finally, where does he get the power to do that? What is Paul's goal? How does he achieve that goal? And where does he get the power to do that? Despite appearances, Paul's goal is not to defend himself against the charges of Jewish authorities. Although he does address that briefly in verse 21. I mean, actually, he's already done that defense. Agrippa, or excuse me, Festus has already agreed to send him on to Rome. So he's made that statement. So what's his, what is he planning to do today? Let's look closely at the passage to figure out what Paul is up to. He opens his speech by showing honor to King Agrippa and giving the king credit where credit is due. Agrippa is indeed familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. And that's a point Paul will return to later. Paul then establishes his own credentials, pointing out that he is known by all the Jews. You see, by virtue of being a standout among the Pharisees, Paul is a bit of a celebrity in Jerusalem. Everybody knows him by name and by reputation. The Pharisees were the elite religious party, and Paul was a central figure. To put it another way, bear with me, if the Pharisees were the New England Patriots, then Paul was their Tom Brady. Don't let that negatively color your opinion of Paul. (laughs) Then he says, then Paul says he's on trial for the hope. And he references this hope not once, but three times. In fact, Paul mentions this hope often in Acts. What is Paul's goal in saying and repeating this? In 23.6, he says, It is with respect with the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. In 24.15, he says, He has hope in God, which these men themselves accept, referring to the religious leaders, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And later, in 28.20, while he's appearing in Rome, Paul says, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Now, Paul wants to tap into Agrippa's Jewishness, his prior knowledge of this hope. There was firm conviction in Israel that God would someday come and deliver his people from their oppressors, not unlike the way he delivered the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt. And furthermore, 
that God would raise up a deliverer of salvation from the house of David. Let's go back to that Christmas story for a moment. In Luke 1, 70, or 67 through 75, we read the song of Zechariah. I would encourage you to write that down, Luke 1, 67 to 75. It'll help you better understand this hope. But suffice it to say, Zechariah, who is old, and his wife, who is old, weren't expecting to have a child. That child was John the Baptist. But at the birth of John the Baptist, Zechariah is not going on and on about his newborn son. He's going on and on. He's singing about the hope of the soon-to-be-arriving Messiah. That's the hope Paul is referencing. The hope of Israel allowed the faithful to hold on through war, through exile, through captivity. That hope is a prophet to speak to them in their ignorance, a priest to bear their iniquity, and a king to subdue their rebellion. In 26, 6 and 7, Paul says, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which the 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So Paul is saying both he and the Pharisees agree on this point. They all share the same hope and believe in the same coming resurrection or believe in a coming resurrection. In order to achieve this goal of sharing his hope, Paul seeks to identify with his accusers. When he makes when he next points out that he used to think just like they do. See, before his conversion, Paul made it his life's mission to wipe out Christianity even in foreign cities. In fact, he was on just such a mission, he says, when Jesus intervened. The issue for the Jewish leaders isn't the resurrection. It's the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth that causes the conflict. And it still does today. Lots of people believe in some kind of afterlife. But Jesus' resurrection specifically poses a problem for them. You can get into lots of conversations about where people think we're going to go after this. It's Jesus that is the sticking point. Paul continues with the story of his conversion. Now, as a trained journalist and one who has taught journalism for nearly 30 years, and I assure you what you see on TV is not that, okay? But as one who has taught journalism for nearly 30 years, I find that the essential questions never go out of style. In fact, the answers to those questions, the who, the what, the when, the where, and the why, inform all meaningful communication. Don't believe me? Try leaving a voicemail inviting someone to a dinner party and don't include the answer to one of those questions. Pretty sure your guest isn't showing up. The who, the what, the when, the where, and the why. Paul uses the same approach, interestingly, to share the gospel with those in his audience. Follow along with verse 14. And when, we, and when we had fallen to the ground, he's referencing his conversion on the road to Damascus, and he had seen a great light. And when he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So the who is Jesus, who has revealed himself to Paul in a most dramatic fashion. A few verses down in 16, we find two more of the W's. The reason Jesus appeared to Paul, the why, is to appoint you as a servant and witness to the, to the things in which you have seen and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom... Here's another who I'm sending you the where in this mission is not overtly stated, but the where is everywhere. Paul is being sent everywhere to proclaim the gospel. What is Jesus sending Paul to do? Well, the answer is in verse 18 to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
There's so much packed into that verse, I would encourage you to underline verse 18 in your Bibles so you can return to it and consider it later this week. Paul elaborates on the contents of this verse in his letter to the church at Ephesus, where he writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's what we call the bad news of the gospel. This is who we were. Here's the good news. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Wow, there's a lot there. But what is Paul saying? First, he's saying it's Jesus alone who does the eye opening, because according to this passage, you were dead. Dead people can't open their eyes. It's God who opens our eyes so that we may turn from darkness to light. John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Before encountering Jesus, we were spiritually dead. We're wandering around in the dark. And without Jesus, we are following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan, When we are outside of Christ, we are deemed children of disobedience. It's not a good title. It's not one we would want to bear proudly. So back to Acts 26, from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So that we may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by me in faith. In addition to the five W's, another question that begs to be answered is the how. How does Paul go about preaching the gospel? How do any of us go about preaching the gospel? We find that answer in verse 20. I have the help that comes from God. Seems pretty simple, but it's huge. It's everything. I have the help that comes from God. Consider Paul in this very moment standing before some serious power brokers, they in their elaborate uniforms and royal robes, and he in his prison clothes and manacles. Paul is so filled with his love for Christ that he continues to bear witness. He's not intimidated. He says, I stand here testifying both to small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both from our people, both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul has spent years bringing the gospel to what society would consider the little people. But now he has the opportunity to preach Christ to the elite, and he does not shrink from the chance to achieve his goal. And clearly his words hit their target and make people uncomfortable because Festus cannot stand to hear another word. But what triggers this pagan official? After all, because he's a Gentile, Paul's word should indeed be good news, that this promise, this hope of Israel has been extended to the the Gentiles, the rest of the world. But see, Festus has been brought up in a culture of materialism. If you can't hold it in your hand, it doesn't exist. So it's likely the resurrection of Jesus that breaks the bonds of credulity for him because he loudly interrupts Paul with, 
You are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul's worldview is contrary to Festus's worldview. In fact, it's contrary to every other worldview as well. The radical nature of the kingdom of God turns everything else upside down. Remember how Paul's speech started with him, a lowly prisoner, being brought out before the power elite in their finest adornments with their display of military might? Well, who's on the defensive now? Where's the power now? The Jews were expecting their Messiah to look and act like all of this pageantry that they see in the building. They expected a warrior, a conquering hero. Jesus didn't look that way. The Jews didn't want a Messiah who must suffer, die, and rise from the dead. It's not what they expected. It was not part of their worldview. And as for the Romans, they had no idea what was going on. All of this seems absolutely ridiculous. Paul, you are crazy, Festus exclaims. It's not one of the things we fear in proclaiming the gospel, that the people who are listening to us will turn to us and say, flying spaghetti monsters? You're crazy. Paul's undaunted, and the stakes in Paul's testimony are far more existential than ours. These people can take his life at any moment. But despite being interrupted and verbally attacked, Paul responds in two ways, with graciousness and with truth. Because the gospel is always true and it's always gracious. How can it not be when it's wrapped up in the grace of God toward us? Paul refers to his attacker as most excellent Festus. Because Paul's not concerned with self-defense against the charges brought against him, nor with the slanderous indictment of his sanity. It just rolls off him. Because that's not his goal. That's not what he's about. As a result, Paul keeps his eyes on his goal of sharing the gospel. And because Paul is absolutely and emphatically convinced the gospel is true, he proceeds on that ground. I'm not out of my mind, he says, but I'm speaking true and rational words. True and rational words. Friends, the gospel is never coercive or manipulative. Paul appeals to the minds of the people he loves. Jesus said you should love your neighbor as yourself. Only the gospel makes that possible. And here we see Paul showing love to the very people who would have him executed, echoing our Lord on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Paul next directs his speech to Agrippa, because he knows the king is aware of Jesus and the stories surrounding him. In the process of achieving his goal, Paul appeals to his hearer's sense of reason. And in doing so, he points out that the gospel is history, the gospel is verifiable, and the gospel is fulfillment of prophecy. The gospel is historical fact and not the stuff of legend. It fits with reality. Paul says, none of these things has escaped the king's notice, for this has not been done in a corner. The gospel about Jesus is true. The gospel is light, and it never hides in the shadows. It's not about a bunch of guys going into a secret room and concocting some kind of philosophy. Jesus proclaimed himself as the Savior of the world in the open square. There was nothing hidden about him. Now, Paul knows Agrippa is well aware of the fact of Jesus' life. Anyone who lived in the region at that time would have to be. 
Paul alludes to the publicly available evidence when he says, this has not been done in a corner. Agrippa knows the context. Festus does not. Paul can safely assume that no one can laugh off the evidence. Consider, Jesus performed scores of biblically recorded miracles and myriad more that are not recorded, according to the Gospel of John. Causing the blind to see, the lame to walk, and the dead to rise cannot be kept a secret. Even those who never followed Jesus or knew, even though who, those who never followed Jesus saw or knew someone who had witnessed these miracles. Second, the empty tomb. 1 Corinthians 5.16 says, Jesus appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, many of whom were still alive at the time that Paul was writing that letter. In addition, Jesus fellowshiped with his disciples, and they wrote about it. And finally, many of Jesus' followers were martyred. People don't die for a hoax. They were martyred in, in horrific ways. And Agrippa himself makes a concession to Paul by not refuting Paul's observation and later by conceding that this man has done nothing to belong in prison. So by saying that, Agrippa is saying that, yeah, what he's saying about Jesus is true. I know all about this. I know people who saw this. Tim Keller, whose writings I've leaned into in preparation for this sermon, says that people may reject Christianity because they don't like it, but they can't reject it based on facts. Paul became a Christian because of the facts. Christianity is and must be based on reason, but reason can only get you to probability. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're considering purchasing a Tesla. That's the car of the future today. Before you do, because they're really pricey, you likely will research the car and gather as many facts as possible before you make your decision. But those facts will only take you to a probability of success in your purchase. Nobody knows what a Tesla is going to be like 10 years down the road. Nobody knows because it hasn't been around that long. Something else has to figure into that purchase, and that something else boils down to emotion. I want to be cutting edge. I want to have a really fast car that goes from here to here when I blink my eyes. I like the color. Those are all emotional things. Christianity not only makes reasonable sense, but it makes emotional sense as well. Consider Paul, who began his speech by pointing out that he was a Pharisee who lived to honor God. But here's what the very law which he fought so diligently to uphold taught him. In Romans 7, he writes, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. That's in Romans 7, 7 through 11. Paul could handle the first nine commandments fairly well, or at least he thought he could. He could on the outside, because those are box-checking commandments. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't lie. I didn't steal. We can check those off. And as a recovering legalist, I like that worldview. I like a list. It makes it easy, but it's not the gospel.
Paul could handle the first nine commandments. They're external. You shall not covet is internal. It's a heart commandment. Paul wanted to be a moral person, which in our culture sounds almost quaint. But he couldn't be a moral person. He correctly reasoned that he should show love and trust God so much that he would always be content. Think about that for a minute. Should love God and trust God so much that we should always be content. But Paul knew it wasn't in him to do so. No matter how hard he tried, he couldn't do it, and neither can we. To further illustrate this, we read back in verse 14 that Jesus said to Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. You've probably heard that word goad as somebody being goaded into something. Goad is like a prod. You're being pushed into something, probably reluctantly, not probably, definitely reluctantly. But a goad, the goad that's being referenced here, was a sharp stick, and it was put on ox carts, and the person driving the the ox cart, if the ox started wandering off the path, would tug on the reins, the ox would kick, he'd hit a sharp stick, and that would put him right where he needed to be. A goad causes pain. Why are you kicking against the goad? The first thing the gospel reveals to us is our depravity. God is righteous and his law is perfect. No matter how hard we try, we fall short of this required perfection. That's the problem Paul encountered when he saw his own sinful heart. But when Christ revealed himself, in Paul's case extremely dramatically... When Christ revealed himself, Paul found the resolution accomplished in the work of Jesus on the cross. We can honor the law only if we believe the gospel. The gospel both explains our situation, our deadness, and resolves our situation in relation to a holy God. So the gospel makes reasonable sense. The gospel makes emotional sense. But it also makes biblical sense. Paul asked King Agrippa, do you not believe the prophets? The gospel makes sense of the Bible. After God reveals himself to you, the Bible makes so much more sense. Perhaps you've known people who you have been sharing the gospel with, and they've said, I've read the Bible. I don't get it. It's just kind of weird. Well, maybe they're reading the King James Version and they're not used to Shakespeare. But they think it's just kind of weird. After God reveals himself to you, the Bible makes so much more sense. No matter where you're reading in the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus is there. Jesus is the center of God's plan. He alone is the hope and promise Paul references earlier in his speech. Jesus alone brings salvation. It's interesting. I had this conversation with Joel last week about the prayer of confession. And... We don't prearrange the prayer of confession in the sermon. Somebody is asked to do the prayer of confession in a specific week, and they're kind of a free agent in doing that within the bounds, of course, of doctrinal soundness. Um, But it's interesting how often that the prayer of confession dovetails with the sermon. The person crafting the prayer of confession hasn't heard the sermon. But... Literally every week, you see the connection because it's all about Jesus, no matter what we're preaching on. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Now, Paul poses the question knowing that either way the king answers will result in political fallout. See, the king is sitting there with Festus, who, even though the king is the king and Festus is a governor, the governor outranks the king because it's Rome who appointed the king. He's a vassal king. So if Agrippa answers, well, of course I believe the prophets, then Festus might turn to him and say, Agrippa, you are out of your mind. So that's, that's one of the, the dangers posed by that question. The other one is, if he denies that he believes the prophets, well, the Jewish religious leaders who Agrippa needs to have in his back pocket in order to be King Agrippa are going to turn on him. 
Now, you might think it's Paul's intent to embarrass the king, but that's not his intent at all. Remember, Paul is about sharing the gospel of Jesus. He's not about, let's get these overlords in front of a group of people, and I'll make them look foolish. I win. Make an interesting movie, but that's not what Paul is about. He graciously lets Agrippa off the hook because he follows that question up immediately with, I know that you believe. Now, does Paul know that he believes? I'd love, one of the things I'd love to have in reading scripture is an audio tape so I would get the tone of what was going on in these conversations because that sentence can be rendered so many ways. I know that you believe. Sarcastic. I know that you believe, emphatic, or hopeful. I know you believe, with an implied, don't you? Don't you at least get that? Paul's testifying, remember, to both great and small in the audience that day. It's interesting, in school I teach Shakespeare sometimes, and when Shakespeare wrote his plays, He wrote some lines to be projected to the elite who sat up in the box seats and others to the groundlings who were on the ground in the mud. And he'd be making fun of the elite to the groundlings and making fun of the groundlings to the elite. Paul has the same message for everyone. The king, being a pretty politic guy, responds with his own question. You can watch this on cable news when somebody asks a politician a question. They answer a different question, or they pose a question that changes the subject. So what the king asked Paul in this moment when he says, you do believe the prophets, don't you? I know that you believe the prophets. The question he asked is, are you trying to convert me in so short a time? Well, yeah, but that's not what Paul says What follows is one of the most beautiful gospel witnesses ever recorded. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. As I am. Paul indeed loves God with all his heart, soul, and mind, and his neighbor as himself. Now, we've answered the first two questions posed earlier this morning. What is Paul's goal, and how does he achieve it? His goal is to share the gospel, and he does it by identifying with others and appealing to their reason. But what about the third question? Where does Paul get the boldness, the poise to do all this? A couple of things to mention here. Paul is never arrogant, despite being placed in a defensive circumstance. How easy it would be for him to go on the attack, to defend Paul. But he's never arrogant. Consider how Paul acted before he encountered the risen Jesus. I find this kind of interesting. He's a whole different guy. He confesses to his old behavior in verses 9 through 11. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in, imposing the name of, in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest. But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Remember Stephen? And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In your mind's eye, picture the face of this Saul. What do you see? I see a guy with veins popping out on his neck and his forehead, his face beat red, Sweat dripping down his temples and spittle flying everywhere. I'm going to stamp out this threat. So why did Paul behave, why did Saul behave that way, who's now Paul, toward Christians? Well, see, Paul was a legalist. 
Paul was all about following the letter of the law. And externally, he was pretty good at it. He could be in the Legalist Hall of Fame, to go back to the Tom, Tom Brady analogy. He was really good at it. But legalists inside know they're not really good at it. Checking the boxes on the outside, it's not easy, but it's doable. It's the heart that's a problem. Paul felt inferior inside, and that feeling manifested itself as arrogance on the outside. Could it be that Paul was afraid of anything that challenged his worldview? That he was. But now, standing before Festus and King Agrippa and all of their entourage, he's absolutely unafraid. There's no fear. In, in addition, he's gracious. That angry, ramped up Paul is gone. Jesus has changed him. He's changed his whole motivation for being. Paul spent the early part of his life trying to appease God. As a Pharisee of Pharisees, the law was his identity. Jesus not only forgave his sins, but also gave him something more. Jesus gave him a place, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in him. We read that in verse 18. Jesus says to all who follow him that you're not only forgiven, you're adopted, you're accepted. Paul rests in the knowledge that he has a place where he fits, where he belongs. This is what enables him to stand before kings and rulers and boldly proclaim the gospel without concern for himself. C.S. Lewis called that sense of belonging the heart of all things. Here's what he wrote in his The Weight of Glory. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality, is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory in the sense described becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. All of us are looking for this, a place to belong, acknowledgement. And not just us, everybody is looking for it. Look at all the different identities we try on and the people around us try on. This is what Christ gave Paul, a place to belong, acceptance, adoption into his family. We've been talking about identity quite a lot these past few weeks. Paul found his identity intimately bound up in his love for his Savior. Here's the source of Paul's boldness. Don't miss it. Despite having been in prison for two years and being paraded publicly in chains, he simply cannot contain the joy he has experienced in knowing Christ. In short, Paul is so persuasive because he has been persuaded. Paul is so persuasive because he has been persuaded. What about Festus and Agrippa? What was their response to Paul's speech? They quickly got up and left at the end of the speech and reasoned that Paul had done nothing deserving prison or death, but that he must be sent to Caesar because he made an appeal to Caesar. That's all we read. We don't read that the light came on for them. Did Paul fail? Oh, by no means. Paul achieved his goal before he ever stood before Agrippa. Remember, Paul's goal this day was to testify to both small and great and to proclaim light, both to the Jews and Gentiles, and that's exactly what he did. While Festus and Agrippa appear unmoved by Paul's call to repentance, they weren't the only people in Paul's audience. Scripture is silent as to whether any converted to Christianity that day. But like us, Paul is commanded only to preach the gospel. 
Jesus alone can open eyes and ears to the truth of his gospel. We've heard Paul preach today, 2,000 plus years later. You've heard it. I've heard it. What will our response to the gospel be? After we share the Lord's table and sing worship songs together, as a response to the preached word, what happens next? Do we leave this building filled like Paul with a passionate appreciation for Jesus who bridges the gap between our depraved selves and a righteous God? Or do we return immediately to the pressing cares of the day? Agrippa and Festus apparently never knew what it was like to experience a risen Savior, and some of you here today can identify with them. But others of you do know what Paul is talking about. But we so easily push the impact of that proclamation aside and instead chase after lesser things. That's why throughout the week we need to continually preach the gospel not only to those around us, but to ourselves. Jesus rocked Paul's world on the road to Damascus, and from that day forward, Paul was able to say, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul remembers always that feeling of having been persuaded. May we all go and do likewise. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this example of Paul, who is so bound up in his love for you that he cannot help but love his neighbor as himself. Lord, we thank you for this application of seeing that sharing the gospel, no matter how intimidating it may feel, is possible because you are the engine that fuels that gospel proclamation. We pray that we will go and do likewise. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray these things. Amen.